It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans, for a man has his father's wife. And you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit. And as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus and my spirit is present, with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. This is the word of the Lord. We're still getting used to this new rhythm, so we'll do it again. I say thanks. I say uh, this is the word of the Lord, and you say thanks be to God. Okay, this is the word of the Lord. Amen. Let me pray for us as we begin this morning. Heavenly Father, what a gift to have your word before us this morning. Father, as we jump into uh, some passages in the book of 1 Corinthians that start to feel extra heavy, Lord, we pray that you would be gracious to us, that you would lead us and speak to us tenderly. And Lord, as we just sang, it is our prayer that you would be the lifter of our heads, the one that turns our eyes that we might see Christ. Father, may we this morning not be so bent inwardly that all we see is ourselves, that all we see is our own opinions, our own glory, our own problems, but Lord, that you would lift our eyes that we might see Jesus Christ, our Savior, who has been crucified for us in our place. Lord, we need you this morning. Would you help us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, several years ago, probably about four years ago, I was um, experiencing some pain in my back. And uh, when I experienced some pain in my, in my back, my first thought at this point in my life is now always one thing and one thing only. My first thought is always, oh, I must have kidney stones. Uh, I had kidney stones one time when I was in college, and ever since then, anytime I experience a back pain, it's always my first thought. And so this was happening to me about four years ago, and uh, I was convinced. I was like, this is it. It's happening again. So I, I, I race off to uh, urgent care. And I go, I walk straight in and I get checked in and I just tell the, the nurse who's, who's kind of checking me and I said, I am here because I have kidney stones and I need your help. And so then they, you know, they, they kind of make me wait for a little while and uh, eventually bring me in. And as I get brought in, I tell that nurse the same thing. I say, I'm here because I have kidney stones and I need your help. So she looks at me and kind of does an intake, asks me some questions and says, okay, you know, you know we're going to run a couple tests. And so they run those tests and, and they come back. And, uh, and the nurse says to me, well, you don't have kidney stones. And I'm confused because I'm pretty positive I do, but I'm not a doctor. Uh, and so, but I started to get very ner- nervous of like, oh, oh, I don't? Oh, oh no, like, what do I have then? What is this? 
And the nurse just looks at me with a very straight face and says, it's back pain. It's, it's back pain. And I was appalled and offended. And sure enough, it was, it was just straight up back pain. But it was this moment of like, uh, you know, a few seconds there, probably about 10 to 15 seconds for me of like pure panic. Of like, you're telling me it's not what I think it is? It's something worse? And I had this fearful moment of being told by a health professional that something worse was going on with my body. And maybe you've had a moment like this. I think deep down in the back of our minds, we fear those moments. We fear those moments where we go to the doctor and receive the bad news. We've heard the stories. We've had the friends who've experienced this. We fear the moment of being told that there is something in us, something among us that's deadly. We fear that moment when we'll be faced with having to figure out what are we going to do with this deadly thing that is among us and within us. And in our passage today, Paul is saying there is something deadly among you. He's saying there is sin that is in you. It is among you and it is spreading and it's deadly. And he's saying if that goes unchecked today, it is going to kill you. It's a really heavy moment in, in the book of 1 Corinthians where Paul starts to address something very serious. And it raises this question for us, what do we do when there is sin among us? What do we do when there is something deadly, sin, among us, when it is in our lives, when it's going on, when it is in our churches? What do we do when there is sin among us? Where do we turn? Where can we find hope and healing? And as Paul says this morning in 1 Corinthians 5, and as the Scriptures say to us, when there is sin among you, we are to run to Christ. When there is sin among you, run to Christ. As we work our way through this passage this morning, I have four things, and they all start with the letter R this morning, so you're welcome. This is a a rare accomplishment uh, here, but I got four words for you, and they all start with the letter R. I'm just going to give them to you up front right here, so there's no surprise. When, When there is sin among you, we must first recognize it, then we need to remove it, then we need to remember who we are, and then we need to rejoice. That's where we're going this morning. It's where Paul takes us on this journey in 1 Corinthians 5. He begins here in verses 1 and 2 by telling us when there is sin among you, you need to recognize it first. Look at what he says in verses 1 and 2. He says, it is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and of a kind that's not even tolerated among pagans, of those that don't follow Jesus, among those that are not Christians. For a man has his father's wife. And on top of that, you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let the one who has done this be removed from among you. He says that there is wicked sin among you. Now, we kind of need to get comfortable in this space for a few weeks here in the book of 1 Corinthians because Paul is going to start talking about a lot of stuff a lot of sin, a lot of wickedness that's going on in this church. And in particularly, starting in, in about a couple weeks, uh, he's going to be talking a lot about sex and a lot about sexual immorality. In fact, we'll have about, um, in the middle of March, starting for about nine weeks, we'll just have a nine-week stretch where he's talking about um, sex and marriage and singleness and divorce and this whole space. And so we're going to kind of get comfortable in this space 
um, together in the scriptures because there's lots of hope and good news for us, but some, maybe some uncomfortable things we need to look at in the process as well. And here he begins by saying, there is sexual immorality among you. The word that Paul uses for sexual immorality, I'm going to teach you a Greek word this morning um, because it's helpful and it's going to carry us through the next couple of months together. It is this Greek word, porneia. Now you know that word uh, because it has that root word in there that we have for pornography. But this word porneia in Greek, and especially within the biblical use of this word, always referred to any sexual activity outside of a covenant marriage between a husband and a wife. It's a catch-all term for anything that falls outside of those boundaries. And so he begins here by saying, there is sexual immorality among you. There is sexual activity outside of the covenant marriage between a husband and a wife that's going on in your church. And it's a problem. Because not only is there this sin that's happening among your church, but it is a kind of sexual immorality that's so wrong that even those that aren't Christians say it's wrong. That's a problem. Like the most obvious statement of the morning. That's a problem. When the non-Christian world has a better compass of morality than the church, that's a major problem, right? When the outside world can look inside the church and say, they don't even think those things are wrong. That's not good. Now, there are going to, at times, be different compasses of morality between those that do not follow Jesus and those that do. The word of God is to be the guide for us, and at times that will mean that those that are not Christians might look at things that Christians do and say, that's not according to my moral compass. That's not, what I'm, that's not the point I'm trying to make here. When it is clearly against the word of God and it's so perverse and it's so evil that it's obvious to everyone, that's a big problem. That's what's happening here. And the specific kind of sin, he tells us, a man has his father's wife. This is incest. This is a man who has his stepmother in an open sexual relationship. This is not a moment of like, well, this man just kind of in a moment of passion made a mistake and they slept together and it is what it is and it's done. No, this is open, defiant, continual sexual relationship with his stepmother. Everyone knows about it and no one says anything about it. That's what's going on here. It fits in the category of willful and unrepentant sexual sin. It's not good. It's deadly. And there is a unique deadly danger, not just to sin, but to sexual sin when we read the scriptures. And we're going to get into this a little bit in the coming months. But God takes sexual sin very seriously. It has grave effects. And so it's very serious to the Lord, and it should be very serious to us as well. And so there's this problem of this is what's happening. Now, Paul doesn't address the woman, and the thought is most likely because this woman is probably not a Christian, probably not in their church, or else it would have been addressed. But this this man is, and everyone knows it, everyone knows what's going on, but no one is saying a word. And so not only is there sin among this church, not only is there wicked sin, there's been a wicked response to the sin. Look at what he says in verse 2. He states the problem in verse 1, and in verse 2 he says, and you are arrogant. That that word arrogant literally means puffed up 
which is what he's been saying in the previous chapters. You're filled with pride and arrogance. You're puffing yourselves up in the midst of this grave sin. This is a problem. Now, there's, there's two options of exactly what's going on here. They're, they're arrogant in, in either in one of two senses. They're, they're either boasting about the sin, saying something along the lines of like, well, we are, we're free in Christ. We've been forgiven of all things. We now have this new identity in Christ. Therefore, all things are lawful for us. We can do whatever we want. We can express ourselves sexually however we want. We can be in any kind of relationship. And so they might be boasting about the sin. They say, look at how free we are in Christ that we can do all these things. And part of that interpretation is based off of something that comes in, in just a couple chapters where, where Paul quotes them and say, says that you're saying all things are lawful for me. That might be what's happening. I don't know for sure though. What is absolutely certain is that they are ignoring it, which is the second option. That they see it, they know it, they know what's going on, they know the, the evil nature of it. In fact, people that aren't even in their church know how evil and wrong and disgusting it is. And yet they're just ignoring it. They're just neglecting it. They're not willing to say anything or confront the man about it at all. It could be one of those two. Both of them are wrong. Both of them are evil. They permitted this man to continue as a member in good standing in their church without any disciplinary action. Now, it could be this man might have been of great social status. That was really important in the city of Corinth. Maybe they thought, we we surely can't go to this man because he's of of a higher social status than us. And if we do this, it might mess up our, our relationships even outside the church. And so it's just messy. Just leave him alone. We don't know exactly why. But this is an issue because the church is not only spiritually arrogant, but now they're morally lazy. And that becomes a really deadly problem. And Paul is telling them, whether, whether or not they are boasting in it or simply ignoring it, to neglect this sin among them is to actually approve of it, to tolerate it, to allow it to happen. He's writing to the church. He never actually addresses the man in this chapter. He addresses the church to essentially say, you are responsible for the moral behavior of your members. Yes, this man is individually responsible for what he does, but the church is also because they're just watching. They know what he's doing. They know it's wrong and they won't say a word. And so Paul's saying, you too are responsible for what's going on because you're ignoring it. Ignoring sin is not loving. It's wicked. Ignoring sin is not loving. It's wicked. Our culture tells us the opposite. Our culture tells us, mind your business. Our culture says, don't point out what someone else is doing is wrong. They're just living their truth. Even if their truth is a lie. That's what our culture tells us, but that's not what the scriptures tell us. Ignoring sin is not loving, it's wicked probably had the experience of, of driving uh, on a road, maybe in, in the wintertime, on winter icy conditions. I know we live in Southern California, so some of you legitimately may have never had this experience. But if you've ever had this experience, you know what happens when you are driving in poor conditions, when a storm is rolling in and it gets icy and snowy, all of a sudden you start to see signs all over the road that give you a warning that conditions are getting worse. Danger is coming. If you turn the radio on, they're going to be telling you these things. If you check 
Caltrans on Twitter and see what the roads are. They're going to tell you things are getting bad. Don't keep going unless you're prepared. Now, why do we tell each other that? Why do we tell each other that conditions are bad ahead and take caution and be careful? Do we say that because we hate each other so much and want to keep each other from going to the destination that we want to go to? No, we do that because we love our fellow man and we want to say, be careful. There's danger on this road. If you keep going, it might get bad for you. We do that because we love our fellow man. It's out of love that we don't ignore danger. I had a a, a moment a, a few months ago where um, one, one of my daughters saw one of her Christmas presents and it made me like so sad because I wanted to keep it a secret. And so she saw the, uh, the Christmas present that, that she had. And, and so in an effort to, you know, divert her, I said, no, 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 that's, uh, that's not one of your Christmas presents. And it was a straight up lie. <laughs> and my, uh, <laughs> I felt a little bad about it, but uh, I was like, but the greater good, no, I don't know. I, I felt bad about it. And my son saw the whole thing. And about two minutes later, he kind of walks uh, into my room and he goes, Dad, that was a lie. And it was the sweetest moment. I was like, God, yeah. <laughs> You're right. It was a lie. And he corrected me. He called me out. He was alarmed to see his dad sin. It worried him. And I think my son in that moment had profound spiritual insight to say, Dad, this is wrong, and if you keep going down this road, it's going to mean bad things for you and our family. Now, I don't know that he could fully express all of that in that moment, but it was all over his face. He was heavy. He was concerned. And so I repented, and I walked with him, and I apologized to my daughter. But my son understood that in that moment, that this is dangerous. To leave this unconfronted is not loving, it's wicked. And it doesn't mean it's easy, but we're called to call out sin among our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. Which means the, the spouse who sees their spouse's secret sin can lovingly call it out and not ignore it. The friend who watches sin grow in another friend is not loving to just stand by and watch it. The church member who watches church leadership devour and walk in sin is not loving to just sit by and be quiet. It is not loving to ignore sin. So Paul is saying the first thing we need to do is recognize it. Recognize that it's among us. He says this in verse 2, You are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Shouldn't you be having the very opposite response? Instead of just pretending like it's not there, shouldn't you recognize it and mourn and turn from your arrogance? Mourning is not primarily, in this context, is not primarily a feeling, it's an action. It's something you do in response to seeing something that produces mourning. Mourning is not just sadness. Mourning is an action of this is causing me to mourn. It's causing me to have an actual outward response. Paul is saying, ought you not rather to have that response to this sin instead of just ignoring it and boasting and how spiritually strong you are? 
Recognize it. Mourn this. Recognize the unrepentant sin that is among you. Or as 1 John 1.8 says, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. There is sin among us, period. Right now, in this church, there is sin among us. Right now, individually, in our lives, there is sin among us. We are liars if we sit here this morning and say, no, there's not. And when we see sin, it leads to mourning, not boasting. The prophet Isaiah, when he catches a vision of the Lord God Almighty on his throne in Isaiah chapter 6, says this, Woe is me, for I am lost. Or another translation of that word would be, I am undone. When I see the holiness of God, I am undone. I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. The thing is, when we get to know more and more of Jesus and we see his glory and his goodness, we become far more aware of the fact that we are not those things. When I see more of Christ, I start to see more of my own sin. And that shouldn't lead to boasting, it should lead to mourning. Mourning that sin. But not mourning for the sake of sadness. Mourning for the sake of turning. When was the last time you mourned over your own sin? Maybe some of us this morning have become far too familiar of just saying, no, 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 there's none, there's none of that here. Nothing big. Just kind of, you know, small, no big deal stuff. Sin is deadly. It's among us. We must recognize it and mourn it, but not for the sake of just being sad, but for the sake of doing what 2 Corinthians 7.10 says, Godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. The response of seeing our sin is not sorrow and grief and mourning just for the sake of being sad and feeling bad about ourselves and feeling like, well, I'm just a mess and I never measure out. The point of it is godly grief, godly mourning, godly sorrow over our sin produces repentance where we not only recognize it, but we remove it, which is where he goes next. Look what he says at the end of verse 2, let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in body, I am present with you in spirit. And as if present, I've already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. So here's the instruction. Verse 4, when you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. When there is sin among you, remove it. The gracious, ordained way God has given us to remove sin is repentance. It's a turning. It's to say, I see this, I recognize my sin, and now I will turn from it. I will turn from walking in this way, and I will turn to go a different direction. I will forsake this, and I will turn my eyes to the Lord. Repentance. 
Because that same passage in 1 John 1 where it says, if you say you have no sin, you're a liar, the very next verse says this, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Is that not good news? He doesn't leave you in that place to just say, there's sin among you, so don't lie about it. Good luck. No, he says, and if you confess it to the Lord, he is faithful. He is just to forgive you and cleanse you of all unrighteousness. Which means that there is no sin too big, no sin too shameful, no sin too evil for the grace of God. You see, the enemy of God's people wants to get you to believe that verse that says, in verse 8, he wants, you, he wants to affirm this verse to you. If you say you have no sin, you deceive yourself and the truth is not in you. And he doesn't want you to keep reading. He wants to keep you in that place to say, look how wicked you are. Look how evil you are. Look at how big these sins are. There's nothing you can do about it. You're stuck in this place. But the grace of God keeps going and says, no, no. There's no sin too big. There's no sin too wicked, no sin too shameful or too evil. If you come to me and confess, I am faithful and just to forgive you and cleanse you of all unrighteousness, so come. Come. Non-Christian that has yet to believe in Jesus, come to Christ, the crucified Savior. Turn from your sins and bring them to him and repent. See that Jesus Christ died on the cross in your place for your sins. And if you turn and believe in him, you will be forgiven and cleansed of all unrighteousness. And Christian, come to Christ, who's already paid for all of your sins. And repent. Trust him. But that's not what was happening in Corinth. This was the graciously ordained way of dealing with sin when it's among you, but this church was refusing to repent. They were boasting. They were refusing to confront this man. And so we have willful, unrepentant sin, and now it's become a bigger problem because now it's just spreading and no one's turning. And so Paul says, it's time to remove it. And it's time to begin by removing him. Removing the man that refuses to repent. How exactly are they to do this? He tells us in verse 3 and in verse 4. He says, when you are assembled in the name of Jesus, do this. He says, my spirit is with you through the writing of my letter. You have my words with you. Through our unity in our faith in Jesus Christ, we are united in one spirit. Therefore, when you gather, it is as if I am united with you. I've already pronounced judgment on this man. He has sinned. He is walking in willful, unrepentant sin. He refuses to turn. He's acting like an unbeliever. He's spreading sin among you. He needs to be removed. So here's how you do it. The next time you gather, the next time you assemble for your regular corporate gathering, which would be something like this, you are to corporately Remove him. It is the church body that is to do this, not simply Paul. The whole church participates in doing this, saying this man needs to be removed from among us, which means we no longer treat him as a Christian because he's refused to live like one. We now treat him as an unbeliever. 
So going back to last week, right? Part of God's love in our lives is to admonish us, right? Admonishment is that gentle, positive pressure of turning us from going one direction and turning us to go another. You are no longer to treat this man like that. You are to evangelize him. He's acting like a non-Christian. So now you treat him as one, which does not mean you hate him. It does not mean you punish him. It does not mean you make fun of him. It does not mean you slander him. It means this, you remove him and you evangelize him. You start sharing the gospel with him, calling him to repentance. They're to do that corporately and they are to do it authoritatively. He says, when you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to remove him from among you and you're to do it immediately. But why? To our modern ears, it sounds very harsh. It sounds very unloving to say, you're going to remove him from the church because he's sinning? No. It's not what Paul's saying. He's not saying remove him because he's sinning. Remove him because he is refusing to repent of his sin. And it's causing tremendous damage. So why do it? There's a few reasons, three in particular. One, for the sake of our witness. Saying for the sake of your witness, you need to remove him. Because right now, the reputation of your church is that you are morally worse than the unbelieving world. The world looks at the witness of this church and says, they're disgusting. Look at what they celebrate and tolerate. Gross. Why would we ever listen to anything you have to say if following Jesus makes me people like this? Ew. Remove him for the sake of your witness to a watching, unbelieving world. At minimum, at minimum, the unbelieving world ought to look at the church and say, wow, there's, there's, there's some morality there. Not because we're so great, but because the Lord's changing us and making us more like him and he's holy. So remove him, first off, for the sake of your witness. Second of all, remove him for the sake of him. For the sake of the sinner, remove him. Look at what he says in verse five. You are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of his flesh so that purpose clause. Why? So that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Remove him for his own sake. They're saying, deliver this man to Satan, which essentially means this, put him outside the care and the domain of God's house. Last week, we talked about all the benefits and care of being in the Lord's house and the way he cares for his sons and daughters and loves them. Paul is telling this church, remove this unrepentant man from your church and put him outside of the home of God. Practically. They're not, they're not pronouncing once and for all, for and ever and ever, this man is going to hell. What they're saying is right now, the life you are living is inconsistent with the word of God. You refuse to repent. You spit in the name of Jesus. You mock his grace. You refuse to turn. You reject the gospel. Therefore, we will now remove you from the domain of God's home. We will put you in the domain of Satan and say, experience what it's like to be outside of God's loving care. Remember what it's like to not be in here, to not be part of God's house and his family and to have his care and love and affection and be a part of his body. Deliver this man outside. 
so that he may experience what it's like to not be here. For the destruction of his flesh. What I think that means is let's deliver him out for the sake of killing whatever is carnal in him. That this sin might be put to death. For the greater purpose so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. The ultimate purpose of removing this man is so that he might actually repent of his sins and be saved. Redemption is the hope. Salvation is the hope for this man. Now, we might object to this and say, well, surely we we, we wouldn't actually do something like this today. That's not really loving. That sounds mean. That sounds harsh. We might say, you know, that's, that's not loving to do that to somebody. But when we read the scriptures, we see it's actually most loving. It's actually most loving to show this man the serious consequences of unrepentant sin. If showing somebody the consequences of unrepentant sin is unloving, Hear this, Jesus is the most unloving being in all of existence, and the gospel is the most cruel message of all time. Because Jesus came to earth to save sinners, which starts with recognizing you are a sinner. It starts with bad news to say we're sinful. We don't measure up to God's holiness. We cannot save ourselves. We have the wrath of God coming for our sins. If that's unloving... Jesus is cruel. But why does Jesus come to do that? Jesus comes to do that. He doesn't leave us in this place. He says, but God, in his mercy, sent me to save you from your sins. But if you can't recognize that you're sinful and need a savior, the good news won't be good. The good news isn't good until we realize the bad news is bad. We want to object and say, don't tell him that he's wrong. Don't don't show him the consequences of his sin. That is unloving. It's actually biblically the most loving. It's not punishment. It's showing this man the consequences of his sin. If we don't think that that's loving, we literally have an unbiblical definition of sin. James 1.15 says this. Desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. When sin goes unchecked, unconfessed, unrepentant, it leads to death. And I would argue, and I think all of you would agree, to watch someone willfully walk towards death and say, it would be cruel for me to tell them that that's leading to death. That would be foolishness. The Bible says sin leads to death. It is most loving to show this man the consequences of his own sin so that he might turn back to the grace of Jesus. We might say, no, 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 but, but, but what about grace? What about grace? That, that, that's not gracious. 
we have to remember what grace is. Grace is the love of God for us when we don't deserve it. And what is grace meant to do? Grace is not meant to say, therefore, live however you want. It's actually meant to change how we live. Titus chapter 2, verse 11 says this, the grace of God trains us. The grace of God trains us. Oh, I didn't get the rest of that verse. It says the grace of God, uh, the grace of God appeared to us, bringing salvation, training us to renounce ungodliness. The grace of God, when you understand it and you grasp it, it actually trains you to follow him. Because you understand, wow, I didn't deserve God's grace. I didn't deserve his love. I didn't deserve his forgiveness. How good is he? I can't believe this, that no matter what I do, no matter how much I sin, no matter how much I mess up, God will love me. He will forgive me. He will cleanse me of all unrighteousness. That's so amazing. I just want to follow him because he's so good. Grace does not look like this. Oh, God is so good and he's so loving that he'll forgive me no matter what I do. Therefore, I just want nothing to do with him. I'll just live however I want. That doesn't make any sense. That's not what grace does. Grace turns us. So to say, no, 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 well, just what about grace? Grace doesn't do that. Grace doesn't say we don't care. Grace says to this man, even though you're walking this way, if you will turn, the Lord Jesus will welcome you. He will not condemn you. He will shower you with his love and his grace. Don't you want to turn back? This road only leads to death. So they say, remove him for his own sake, that he might be saved. But also, remove him for the sake of the body. And this is Paul's greatest concern as he's writing this section. In verse 6, look what he says. He says, your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Now, you might not know what leaven is. I didn't know what leaven was, really, to be honest with you. Um, here's, the, here's, a, here's a definition of leaven. A le- leaven is a small portion of a previous batch of dough that has fermented, and you set it aside, and you add it to the next batch. And when you add it to the next batch, it spreads all throughout the whole bread, and so the bread starts to rise. Throughout Scripture, this leaven is a reference to sin. It says this is what sin does. You add a little bit of it into a piece of dough, and it spreads to reach every corner of it. This is what sin does. Sin doesn't stay isolated. Sin is always trying to spread. It doesn't want to just hang out with you. It wants to kill you. And every once in a while, you see a story on the news pop up of somebody that decided it was a good idea to have like a python as a pet in their house. You've probably seen some of these stories before where it's like all of a sudden a new story, python starts sleeping next to so-and-so in their bedroom. And, oh, what do you know? The next day, so-and-so is no longer living because they were eaten by their pet python. I don't understand that. If you have a pet python, hey, more power to you, but it seems foolish. Because a python wants to destroy you. It's a predator. It wants to eat you. That's what sin wants to do. Sin likes to convince you it's just kind of here to hang out, just be a pet under your control, but ultimately wants to spread and it wants to devour you. Paul's trying to wake this church up, say this is dangerous. This is not just a bad example. It's not just a bad apple in a good bunch. 
His sin does not stay with him. It spreads to you because you're tolerating it. You're approving of it. You're doing nothing and it's going to spread and it's going to destroy you. So remove him also for your own sake. For the sake of the holiness of the bride of Christ. Remove it. And he gives this symbolic reference to the Passover celebration throughout this story. And in the Passover celebration, the people of Israel were called to search their house for all leaven within their home and remove it. They were to have no leaven in their house. They were to eat no bread that has used leaven. They were only to eat unleavened bread during the Passover celebration. And in fact, they were told this, if anyone is caught with leaven in their home eating leavened bread, they would be given the strictest of judgments. They would be cut off from the people of Israel. And I think it's the Lord preparing us to understand the dangers of sin. Paul's main concern is the purity of the church. That when sin goes unrepented and untouched and unconfronted, it kills. You see, nobody goes to hell simply because they sinned, but because they refused to repent. Because all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But if you're a Christian here, it means you've turned. You've repented of your sin. You've trusted in Jesus. So when there's sin among you, recognize it. Remove it. This third one here is remember who you are. Look at what he says in verse 7. He says, cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump. As you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. He's saying this, your sin has already been removed from among you. You already are unleavened bread. That is who you are as the people of God, as the church, as the body of Christ. You're already unleavened. Your sin has already been removed from you. How? Through Christ, our Passover lamb. He says, Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Our sin was a deadly problem that required a deadly solution. And it was Jesus. And Paul calls Jesus our Passover lamb, which is so rich in meaning. If you're not familiar with Passover, here's kind of a brief explanation of what Passover is. Passover was this, was this moment for God's people when they were enslaved to Egypt and God had been bringing plague after plague after plague to free his people from slavery in Egypt to, to lead them out to a new promised land. And finally, as it's kind of coming towards the close of these plagues, the Lord comes to his people and says, it's time to go. Here's your instructions. Each family is going to find for themselves a lamb without spot or blemish. You're going to collect it for yourself, for your family, one for each family, and you're going to all kill this lamb. And you're going to take the blood of the lamb and you're going to put it on your doorposts and on the lintel of your doors. And you're going to get together with your family at night and you're going to cook this lamb and you're going to eat all of it and you're going to pack all of your things into bags so that you're ready to go. You're going to have your staff in your hand. You're going to be ready at any moment to leave. And on this night, I am going to come and pass through the land of Egypt. And I'm going to kill every firstborn son in every house. But, he says, when I see the blood, I will pass over you. 
when I see the blood on your doorposts, I will pass over you and there will be no judgment for sin on your home because it means you trust me. And there was a preacher I heard once who told a, a fictional story imagining two people on the very first Passover night saying one to the other, man, tonight's going to be crazy. Man, this is, I mean, a lot of crazy stuff has been happening, a lot of these wild plagues, man. I'm nervous. I'm a little worried about tonight. Like, it's just, it's, it, could, it could be intense. And the other man says to him, well, have you followed all the instructions? Did you, did you get the lamb and did you kill it? Did you put the blood on your doorposts? And to which the man replies and says, well, of course, yeah, absolutely. Like, I'm not dumb. I, I, I followed all the Lord's instructions. We got the lamb. We did it. We packed all of our things. We're ready to go. But still, like, I'm just scared. Like, you know, you yourself, you got three sons. I only got one. If you lose one, you still got two. But like, for, I mean, this just, I want to make sure like I, I did it right. And I, I'm just still nervous. Aren't you nervous? To which the other man says, no, bring it on. I trust the promises of God. And when the Lord swept through Egypt that night, which one of those men lost their sons? Of course, the answer is neither of them. Neither of them, because when the Lord passed by, he saw the blood of the Lamb. Their salvation was not dependent on their confidence, on the strength of their faith, on how well they had lived the last 40 years. The Lord passed over them and saved their home because he saw the blood of the Lamb. What is the ground of our assurance that our sins have been paid for and covered and washed from our record fully and forever removed from us? It is the blood of the Lamb, Jesus Christ, our Passover Lamb who was slain in our place. And Paul is saying this, remember the gospel. Remember Christ, your Passover Lamb. It's how your sins have been removed from among you. Jesus saw your sin, saw that you deserved death, and yet he shed his blood for you, if you believe. And it's not the strength of your faith, but the object of your faith that saves. And you know, the day that Jesus made his triumphal entry into Jerusalem, before he was crucified, it was the same day that the Passover lambs were being brought into the city, one for each family. The last supper meal that Jesus had with his disciples was a Passover celebration meal. And while Jesus was being crucified, every Jewish father in Jerusalem would have been gathering his family together to say, God has provided a lamb for us. And while Jesus, at the same time, was hanging on the cross as the true Passover lamb, covering us with his blood, God has provided a lamb for us. When I see the blood, I will pass over you. Jesus is the true Passover lamb for us. But he's a better Passover lamb. He doesn't just save us from judgment, but he gives us so much more. The blood of Jesus gives us so much more. It not only saves us from judgment, it justifies us. Which means by his blood, God looks at those who believe in him and says, you are declared righteous. Meaning right now, because of the blood of Jesus, God looks at his children and says this literally to you, you are righteous. I have counted you as righteous. It cleanses us 
There's no more stain of sin on us. It has washed us clean. It marks us as his children. It says this one is marked as a child of God. It doesn't just save us from judgment. It also seals us forever. God's blood seals us as his. It sanctifies us, meaning it makes us holy again and again and again and more and more and more. It covers us forever. And it silences the accuser. As Revelation 12 says, we have an accuser who comes against the brethren, accusing them. And Revelation looks forward to the day when it says, I saw the accuser thrown down. And God's people overcame him by the blood of the Lamb. And by the word of their testimony and by not loving their lives even unto death. Paul's saying to the church, live as you already are. You are unleavened. Sin has already been removed from among you, so live like that. He's reminding them of our, their identity. He's reminding us of our identity if you're a follower of Jesus. How do, you, how do you view yourself? Think about this for a second. How do you view your primary identity? When you think about yourself, if you are a Christian this morning, how do you view yourself? Do you view yourself primarily as a sinner? Or do you primarily view yourself as a redeemed son or daughter of God? When you view your own heart, do you primarily view it as wicked and dirty and gross and sinful? Or do you primarily view it as something soft and moldable and new and filled with the Holy Spirit? See, we're tempted to think, no, I need to view myself as this way. That's not what the Bible says about the New Testament Christian. It says you have been made new. You are a new creation. You've been given a new heart. I've put my spirit in you. You are clean, you are righteous, you are forgiven, you are a son or daughter, you have a brand new identity, so actually believe it. You really are unleavened. Now, of course, we will continue to sin. Of course, we will have moments where we step back to our old identity, but when that happens, we need to remember, that's not who I am. It's not who I am anymore. And when that happens, we come back. Come back to the Lord. And we remember he's removed our sin from us. And we remember our identity. Paul gives it to this church in the midst of this instruction because I believe he's telling them this is your power to turn from sin. It's actually not up to you to fully remove sin from among you. You can't do that. You actually can't remove leaven from bread when it's already spread. It's actually like not possible. But with God, all things are possible. And he has removed the leaven from among you. So God's not telling you to be the one that gets rid of all sin fully and forever. You don't have that power. He's saying he did it for you, therefore remove the sin because it's not who you are anymore. Remember who you are. Lastly, this. He tells them to rejoice, but to rejoice in truth. Look at what he says in verse eight. Therefore, Celebrate the festival. What festival is he talking about? Well, he just referenced Passover. But we don't celebrate Passover anymore as New Testament Christians because Jesus Christ is our true and better Passover lamb. The closest thing we have to celebrating Passover is communion. The meal of Passover was bread and wine, bread and blood. 
That's what we have for us this morning. The table where we celebrate the body of Christ broken for us and his blood poured out for us. Let us come to celebrate our new life in Christ, but how? Not with the old leaven, he says, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. He's telling them, come worship the Lord. Come celebrate your new identity in Christ. Come celebrate what Jesus, our Passover lamb, has accomplished for us. But don't come to the Lord in worship with evil and malice. Don't come in here arrogant and boasting and lying. Who do you think you're fooling? Don't come in here this morning with unrepentant sin and boasting and thinking the Lord doesn't know about it or care about it. No, he's saying, let us celebrate our new life in Christ with sincerity and truth. Meaning this, come in here this morning to worship saying, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Come in here with honesty and confession and repentance. Not lying, not coming in here saying, I'm good, no big deal. Got my pet python under control. <laughs> no, come in here with sincerity and truth and honesty, recognizing if I'm a Christian, I've already been cleaned. I've already been declared righteous. Jesus has already paid for all of my sins. So why would I ever hide anything from him? Let me bring it to him in honesty this morning. This is the safest place to come, honest, broken, and real before the Lord Jesus. It's the safest place to come just as you are and find grace. So he says, let us come and celebrate our new life in Christ with sincerity and truth. Let us do as the song says as we're about to sing, I come broken to be mended. I come wounded to be healed. I come desperate to be rescued. I come empty to be filled. I come guilty to be pardoned by the blood of Christ the Lamb. And I'm welcomed with open arms. So praise God just as I am. He welcomes you to come as you are and find grace at the foot of the cross in the blood of the Lamb. Let's pray together.